0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: For the sporty fitness challenge, this time we're simply putting one foot in front of another, going for a walk, and
0: the benefits aren't just physical. One of the benefits of walking is you can connect in a way that you can't with any other activity, including sitting down and having a chat. If someone's got a spouse or a partner and you, you know, you have been upset with each other, often going for a walk together, you could be walking for a while, then suddenly you're holding hands. So all the things which might have annoyed you about, kind of dissipate while you're walking in step, sharing the same beat as you walk. So you're connecting your thinking as well. Walking for exercising mind, body
1: and saving relationships. Coming up later here on Sporty. Hi, I'm Amanda Smith. I'll also be taking you back to the Tokyo Olympic Games in 1964. Well, the 2020 version should have been on in Tokyo right now. But we'll go back with the person who was both the best and the baddest girl at the Games, Dawn Fraser. It's been a bad week for international figure skating. A 19-year-old former World Championship skater, born and trained in China, has spoken out about the training system there as being a culture of physical and verbal abuse. And in the US, a lawsuit has been filed against a former figure skating coach, where he's accused of years of sexual abuse. And the Russian-born skater Ekaterina Alexandrovskaya, who competed for Australia, took her own life in Moscow. She was just 20 years old and recently retired. Earlier this year, she was diagnosed with epilepsy and reported to have depression. Ekaterina was a pairs-figure skater. Her partner was Harley Windsor, and they were the first skaters for Australia to win a world title, the World Junior Championships, in 2017. And in October last year, when they were competing at Skate America, Nicola van der Wettering spoke to them for Sporty. As a tribute, let's hear a bit from Ekaterina, her thoughts about her sport and her future.
2: They represent Australia. Let's have a warm welcome for Ekaterina, Alexa and Harley Windsor. I started skating. My mum just brought me to the ice rink. Just started skating. <laughs> yeah, it's normally in Russia. <laughs> because you start, like all kids started. Years old, now it's three years old. Every day from like 6 a.m. till like 4 p.m., you were like on ice rink. It was pretty serious straight away. (laughs) I mean, until like 12 years old, you don't have uh, like friends outside of the ice rink. So, and just my mom was pushing me, and like all kids like this. Yeah, in Russia, it's really popular, so compared to Australia and. It's just a little bit hard for me to train in Australia because it's different compared to Russian like atmosphere. I don't know. I don't really like figure skating so much. <laughs> like from the young age, actually. But I don't know, I just have nothing to do now. It's like a job and like for results. But we never know what's going to happen next year or something, you know, like injuries or some stuff. It's sport, so it can happen everything. Ekaterina Alexandrovskaya,
1: who died in Moscow this month, aged 20. We've talked a bit on Sporty about athlete welfare and mental health. I would say this is a case in point. Help is available at Lifeline. The number is 13 11 14. Now, if everything had gone to plan, the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games would be on right now with the opening ceremony held this Friday just gone and the competition underway. It'd be the swimming in particular that we'd be watching this week. Let's go back, though, to the Olympic Games in Tokyo in 1964 through the eyes of the Australian swimmer Dawn Fraser. Dawn, what's your strongest memory of those Tokyo Games? marching in the opening ceremony,
3: uh, you know, I sort of got into a bit of trouble because a shift the mission sent out a, a notice that if anyone was competing within the next 24 hours of the, of the opening ceremony, they could not march. But I got on the bus and went into the opening ceremony with the team. Uh, uh, our manager of the team, Bill Slade, got on the bus and said, is there anyone on this bus that shouldn't be here? And everyone said No. And we went. And I marched in the opening ceremony. Well, they held that against me when I got
1: back to Australia after the games. Yes. And well, one of a few things that got held against you. Let, let's mm. let's though talk about the competition itself, because in those days, I think it was quite unusual for swimmers to compete across multiple Olympic games. So by yes. Tokyo in '64, you must have felt you were an old hand at, the, at this sort of thing compared to the teenager you'd been at your first games <laughs> in '56.
3: Well, you know, I was being called the granny by some of my team members.
1: <laughs> you were only 27, like... I think, weren't
3: you? Yeah, 27. But I was still was many years older than the nearest girl to me. you see. So they all used to call me, come on, granny, let's go on for a walk or go for a ride on our bikes or things like that. It was quite funny, actually, sometimes. Because everyone would look around and say, have you got children? <laughs> I said, yeah, there's my team behind me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: How confident were you going into those Olympic Games in Tokyo that you could pull off a third win in the 100 metres freestyle in your event? Well, I
3: wasn't very confident at all because I didn't have my coach. Uh, He wasn't allowed to be with the team, Mr Gallagher, Um, You know, I was getting mentally, I was getting over the, the death of my mother because I was the driver of the car that killed her. Yes,
1: and, uh, I mean, you really didn't go into those games in very good shape, physically or emotionally. No, no, Some months no, before I mean, you'd had that terrible car crash, you had a neck injury, your mother yes. was killed. It's amazing you were able to compete at all.
3: Well, I did it for mum. Unfortunately, she wasn't there, but she was there in spirit in me and, you know, that that's what made me go on and win because she was there with me.
1: What do you remember of the actual race, Don?
3: Oh, well, I remember Sarah Showder, who was a really young 15-, 16-year-old girl.
1: American girl.
3: Yes, she was very fast and, uh, you know, I watched her train and got to know where she was going to swim fast, how she was going to swim a race and that's how I won the race because I had a better finish than she did. I always had a fast finish and I knew that if I could get that a bit earlier, I'd get into the wall faster. Normally I used to get it out about 10 metres, but I got it out about 15 metres and it sort of lifted me up and I I just floated into the wall. That's how it felt. And um, it was the first time anyone had ever won three of the same events in three Olympic Games.
1: Yeah, it's quite a feat. Melbourne in 1956, Rome in 1960 and Tokyo in 1964.
0: they are coming down with only about... Ten yards to go, and it's neck and neck. Leach and Fra- uh, Fraser and Crap, Fraser and Crap, and it's to the line, and it'll be Fraser first, Crap second. But no doubt about it, Fraser is going to steal this race. She's going to win very, very easily—a a bo- length lead. And Fraser comes in and wins easily from Fontalda. And it's only nine seconds. possibility. And here's Dawn Fraser racing through to take the lead. Sharon Staller in five's trying to go with her. And it's going to be a great race, race between the Don Dawn Dawn Fraser and Don Fraser will win. Don Fraser first, Dara second, and Ellis
1: third. So you were the absolute star in sporting terms, but you did get yourself into some further trouble after the opening ceremony. You were arrested by the Tokyo police, nearly ended up in jail. Can you tell us how and why you got involved in souveniring, well, stealing <laughs> Olympic flags from outside the Emperor's palace? Well, I was away from the team.
3: I was staying at the Imperial Palace Hotel in, in, in Tokyo. I was You'd finished competing. I had finished competing. I had the last week off to, to finish this film. Uh, the Australian Hockey Boys won a bronze medallion and my producer, director Lee Robinson, Lee said to me, Dawn, why don't you invite the boys in for a drink at the hotel on their way back? And I said, yes, I'll do that. So I rang Charlie and, and Charlie said they love to bring He brought in. I think eight of the team members. We had a few beers and then one of the, well, I couldn't say who it was at the time, but the doctor, Dr. Howard Toy and another athlete, myself, we went out up the road to a souvenir a couple of Olympic flags and uh, we got caught by the police, we were taken to Marinucci Police Station. We had no IDs on us at all. And they didn't believe it was, I was Dawn Fraser. And I said, well, yes, I am. I said, no, 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 she wouldn't do that. And I said, yes, she would. And they said, well, you know, you want a souvenir, you go to the shop and buy the souvenir. This is actually stealing property of our country. And I was in big trouble until Mr. Lee Robinson brought my ID down. And when they saw it, they let me go. I wrote a letter to the emperor apologising that I had disgraced myself in the eyes of the Japanese people. And the next morning, there was a knock on my hotel door and... The detective sergeant came in with this box of flowers and he's saying to me in his gruffy voice, open, open, and here was the Olympic
1: flag from the emperor. <laughs> <laughs> so you did go on. In the first place, how how easy or difficult was it to get those flags, to nick them?
3: Well, they weren't difficult at all. I mean, um, putting one person on two people's shoulders down the bottom just undo the flag and then it came. Yeah. We got two, but I don't know what happened to the other one. I know that they gave me one. I don't know what happened to the other one. Do you still have uh, yours? John Singleton and Gary Packer gave me a testimonial luncheon when I finished swimming and I put the flag up for auction and it opened up at $50,000 and my daughter was sitting across at the table from KP and and, um, Alan Jones and people like that on our table. I had Esther Williams and her husband, Bill, wow. out as my guest. Anyway, it sold for $76,500 and it was brought down to the table and it was thrown across the table to my daughter from KP and said, I don't want anyone to know that I bought this until after I die. Um, and we kept it a secret all those years and now she has it.
1: And Kerry Packer bought it for her? Mm-hmm,
3: Yes. As a lovely gesture to my daughter, because she broke into tears when um, when it was sold, because mm. we didn't know who the buyer
1: was. Well, Dawn, those Tokyo games were were both a high point for you as a swimmer, getting that third successive win in the hundred metres, uh, and the low point, I guess, because of a few of those things you'd done in Tokyo, the Australian Swimming Union banned you for ten years. So effectively, it was a life ban. Was that fair? Yeah. Was that fair?
3: No, it wasn't fair. The Australian Swimming Union, as it was called in those days, had it in for me when I was 12 years of age because I was a member of the Leichhardt Belmain League of Swimmers and, unbeknownst to me, that was classed as a professional swimming club and I, I swam very well in the tiny tots or in the tiny tots handicap and stuff like that. And anyway, um, I had to go through the Amateur Swimming Union of Australia at 12 years of age, so they banned me because I didn't know anything about amateur status then at 12 years of age. I just loved swimming because I was an asthmatic and I enjoyed going down the club with my brothers and, and enjoying our swimming. And uh, a lady from Belmaine who was with the Belmain Amateur Swimming Club took up my case and got my amateur status back at 14 years of age. So I was really up for two two and a half years, and uh, the person that really hated me from the Australian Swimming Union, he told me I had to go into his office, and uh, he banged on his desk and said, "You will never ever swim for Australia." And I got up because I was really, and I banged his desk back and said, "Yes, I will." And that was Bill Birch Phillips, and he was president of this Australian Swimming Union at the time.
1: Right. So you two had got off to a very bad start, and it continued. Yeah, he ha- he hated the fact that
3: I came from Belmain, you know, sort of a uh, person that had to work for a living. A working-class suburb. Yeah.
1: So I had to fight him all my swimming career. And that, and that included that ban as a consequence of Tokyo, which wasn't for just um, the flag incident or no, marching in, in the opening flag. ceremony. But yes. also you didn't wear the right swimsuit. Well, in, in those days, Amanda, we only had
3: one swimsuit, right? Mm. We, just, we didn't have three or four pair of swimsuits. So we had heat in in the morning and then in the afternoon we'd have semifinals and then the next time we, we'd have finals. So we had wet swimsuits and there's nothing worse than to try and put on a wet swimsuit. Yeah. So um, I was a dressmaker and I had made my own swimsuits out of silk. They were the green and gold, had the Australian map on the front, but they were the official swimsuit. Mm. So, Leslie Herron, the Chief Justice of New South Wales, he fought my case for me and uh, and got my ban lifted.
1: Yes, although it was really a bit too late for you to compete at Mexico <sighs> uh, in 68? Yeah, I would have only had
3: twelve months to train and that wasn't enough because I wasn't allowed to swim anywhere. I wasn't allowed to train in any swimming pool because if there had been a swimmer in there training with me, they would have had to go out too and that, that wasn't being fair. Yeah,
1: wow. It's it's amazing, isn't it, to think uh, how kind of strict the rules were over what seems to us now to be pretty small, petty reasons. Yes,
3: yeah. Well, I sat back recently and just thought, well... You know, I was a pioneer for my sport. I got the amateur status change. Um, and I set an example for young girls to be inspired to their sport and got rid of the, the grumpy old men that were sitting on the board. When then we had a mixture of both men and women on the boards and, and they saw fit to let every child swim if they were good enough to swim in championships. Do you still swim, Dawn? I haven't since I broke my elbow in Melbourne in December mm. and I haven't swum since then because it's just getting better now, just getting able to straighten it out.
1: Oh, well, I hope you get back to it.
3: Yeah, I will. I'll get back to it when, I, um, when the physio says I can get back in the water. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually looking forward to it now
1: because I've been out of the water for so many months. <laughs> Well, I wish you all the best. Dawn Fraser was the first swimmer to win the same event across three Olympic Games, which she did in Tokyo in 1964 in the 100 metres freestyle. It was also her fourth Olympic gold medal. Dawn, thank you so much for joining us on Sporty. Thank you, Amanda. Thank
3: you very much for being lovely talking with you.
1: Well, while Dawn Fraser's working on getting back in the pool at 82, plenty of you have got your own challenges on the go if you're participating in the Sporty Fitness Challenge where you're invited to take up some specific physical activity and set yourself a goal for where you want to get to with it by the end of August. Then, by midnight on the 1st of September, send us an account of how you've gone with it all to sporty at abc.net.au. You can still join in, and you might like to take up what's possibly the first and oldest form of exercise and transportation. Ben Rossiter loves walking. He's the Vice President of the International Federation of Pedestrians and the Executive Officer of Victoria Walks. And we've met near the Yarra River on a path that winds along the
0: river through the northeastern suburbs of Melbourne. We're walking over a path which has got a few furrows and stones and it's not very flat. It's also nice to be walking along a river, isn't it? Oh, it is. We've got river, we've got some established... Gum trees, and I think for recreational walking, it really makes it, you know, just spending time in nature.
1: So, Ben, if I take up regular walking as my sporty fitness challenge, how should I approach it and how will my life be improved? You know, for starters, if I haven't done much walking lately, how far should I start with? How often?
0: Like most Australians, you're going to be walking already uh, because it is the most popular recreation activity by country mile. Um, But if you want to take it up as a fitness challenge, um, one of the things about walking is it's accessible. Anyone can do it. You don't need special clothes. You can do it by yourself, with friends, with family and that sort of thing. But do, you know, if you've got some serious health conditions, check with your doctor before you go. But really, just get out there. And I think start with a manageable distance. Don't try and overdo it. So what's a manageable distance? Well, it depends on the person, but I'd say... Even if you haven't, if you've really been inactive for a while, start with 10 minutes, do 10 minutes a day, build up to 20, 30 minutes, and you're off from there. You're really set.
1: You mentioned walking alone or with family or with friends. Which do you reckon is better?
0: It depends. There is a, generally a slight gender difference. Women, and this is generalising, but women tend to be attracted more to social aspects of walking. So a lot of women will walk with their friends more than men, and that poses an interesting think for how we design our walking tracks, traditionally they're designed to be quite narrow. And that, um, I've heard from walking organisers, suits males more than females. Generally, if you're designing for everyone or for women, you would have moments where the tracks were wide so people could talk, but then go in narrow so you could have your own time with nature. So it does vary a little bit. The thing that I find annoying uh, and sometimes dangerous with walking
1: paths like this one is that uh, you're sharing it with cyclists. You know, if the if the cyclist's polite, and tinkles their bell as they come up behind you, you know, to step aside, that's fine. But often they don't and they just try to whiz around you. I hate that.
0: You're not alone. I'm an everyday cyclist, so I I get both sides of the equation, but it's a major issue, shared paths. This morning I was out walking in the dark in the morning with some 60 and 70-year-olds and there's a couple who have been walking for decades and they're in their 70s and they're explaining when they walk, they walk single file because they're scared of getting hit by bikes. And one of the issues we've got in Australia is a lot of our shared paths that originally envisaged us low volume, low speed environments are now really busy, particularly in our uh, big cities where they're used by commuter cyclists, sport cyclists, and they whiz around. They're, I think, erroneously named as shared paths because that implies they're shared, they're equal. They're not. And we saw it this morning, some not all, fortunately, quite aggressive cyclists who will tell walkers, get over, get off the path, not ring their bell. So it is a bit of an issue, and part of that is because our shared paths in urban areas because we don't reallocate road space to enable uh, a lot of cyclists to go safely on a road, which is what we should be doing. We kind of build our roadways for cars.
1: Just coming back to that thing about walking with friends too, um, a number of people I know have uh, reported that because walking is one of the few reasons you were allowed out during the lockdown, they're now more inclined, if they want to meet up with a friend, to go for a walk rather
0: than arrange to get together over a drink or a meal. Yeah, I think it's one of the, I guess, the silver linings, few of them. People out and about walking with... I think a level of social interaction with distancing that many people had not seen in their lifetime, just really people getting out, that really changes behavior. There's a chance that for a lot of people will keep up that walking. And that I think is really something we can build on. And one of the things why it's a benefit or the benefits of walking is you can connect in a way that you can't with any other activity, including sitting down and having a chat. When you Why walk, because when you walk together, I think walking side by side, in steps, sharing the space, it's one of the things that connects us as a human. It's also quite non-confrontational. Walking together, you stop, you listen to the birds, you look around. You don't have, you're not compelled to talk all the time. You're not compelled to make eye contact no, either. No, and eye contact can be quite confronting. Even uh, if you're walking, if someone's got a spouse or a partner and you're a bit upset with each other, that idea of often going for a walk together, you could be walking for a while, then suddenly you're holding hands. So all the, the things which might have annoyed you about kind of dissipate while you're walking in step. You're kind of sharing the same beat as you walk. So you're connecting your thinking as well.
1: It's also uh, walking just uh, a way to get to know
0: your local area better, I suppose. Yes. You know, when I walk around my neighbourhood, it's kind of like I've got roots that um, I own. They're mine, little things. You know, there might be a fence I walk past I always look at, or a tree I always touch, or, you know, people I might look out for, a front yard I look for, and I think a lot of people have that. You have your little treasures, your little joys, and you get to know people and places, and it gives you a sense of I don't know, belonging, which is really important um, for not just our physical health, but our, our mental health. One of the things, I'm, I'm not so much of a dog person myself, but we know that people who have dogs have to walk them and yeah. they do meet a lot of other people yes, while they're walking. it's enforced walking, walking really, it isn't it? enforced walking. And it's a way of connecting. So people who do own dogs tend to... Research has shown they know more people in the community because they're out and about. Well, as you've been saying, walking is the most popular physical activity in Australia. It's
1: free. It doesn't involve learning to do something you can't already do. And it's not as taxing as running or, you know, a gym workout or playing tennis. But does the the simple act of walking deliver enough in the way of
0: fitness? Often people ask, well, what's the best exercise? Well, the best exercise is the one you're going to do. Yeah. That's the clear message. And walking is the one people are most likely to do. Um, Walking also gets... um, it comes through a bit negatively in the sport and recreation sector. People talk about walking as an entry-level activity. It's not. It's really, if you like, the apex activity. It's the first thing a child wants to do, the last thing a senior wants to give up as they get older, and it's most popular in between. You've got to remember that, and a lot of people are not going to do other things. But if again, if, you, if it's about fitness and health, well, it might be about really getting out and walking quite briskly. You know, you might break out in a bit of a sweat, that sort of thing. And, you know, we want heart health. It's really about, you know, getting brisk while we walk. So what can
1: be done policy-wise to make walking uh, more possible, more attractive?
0: I think, given that I've talked about how important walking is, walking for transport, it's about one in six to one in seven transport trips are done entirely on foot. And walking for recreation is the number one activity. But what is an issue is the funding and support for walking, whether it's transport and recreation, and state and federal governments really don't fund it like they should. Um, And so the high levels of walking have not happened really because of good planning and investment, they've happened despite a lack of it. So we need to really look at what the, the activity that people are already doing, interested in doing, predisposed to doing, and support. And if we support it, we could do a lot more. I think we need to make sure that every community has access to good quality green walks in their community they don't need to drive to we need to make sure our walkability of our streets and neighborhoods are better with better quality paths ability to cross roads so they're safe they're convenient they're appealing so there's a lot of work we can and should do but state and federal governments need to lift their game Um, the last budget i think we had you know it was like a hundred million on basketball, they funded millions and millions on netball, on motorsports, on shooting, these sort of things. But there was no dedicated funding for walking, even though it's the most popular activity. So our sports agencies around the country really need to lift their game and invest in walking because it will have an enormous social, mental and physical health community benefits.
1: And Ben Rossiter is the Australian representative of the board of the International Federation of Pedestrians. In fact, he's the vice president. Ben, it's great to meet you and thank you for walking with me.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to go out. The sun's now come out. It's a glorious day. It's wonderful to be alive and walking, so thanks for that.
1: Boy, it's a long bridge, this one.
0: It is. Oh, it, keeps, it keeps going. God, I love the... um, when you get the light on the gum trees, the sunlight.
1: Yes, it's
0: lovely, isn't it? You know, I like when you walk, how the world gets bigger because everything slows, you see more, you feel more. uh, And that's really what the joy of walking, it really just changes how you interact with the world.
1: But of course, depending on where you are in the country and what the rules are at the moment, you may need to be in a face mask while you're walking out and about. And walking is something that lots of you who've taken up the fitness challenge are doing. Helen says she's been very sedentary this year, so I'm not going to be ambitious. Her goals are to walk at least 20 minutes, six days a week. Each must be at least one and a half k's, and do some stretches every day. And she says, thanks for motivating me to get started. Noel says, during the six weeks of lockdown, no pounding the pavement for me. I'll dust off the treadmill and do 100 k's on it, walking speed, between now and the end of the challenge. And there are a few of you doing Nordic walking. That's where you use poles. Kristen says she used to be a runner, but gets a way better workout from Nordic walking. Her challenge is to prepare for a 10K event, the Canberra Running Festival, later this year. While others will be running it or walking, ordinary walking, she's doing it, Nordic walking. Well, all the best to all of you who've taken up the challenge, whatever it is you're doing. If you feel like it, send in your progress reports, photos, little videos to sporty at abc.net.au. Sporty is produced by Damien Rabbit. I'm Amanda Smith.